Welcome to Nation. Welcome back to Two Dog Teachers and a Mic. I am here. I'm chilling. It's, I'm not chilling, actually. It's like 95 degrees right now. <laughs> it's like really hot. And uh, Kevin is away again because he hates me. No, just kidding. Kevin is away because he's at a conference. He get, he actually gets back today, but uh, was not going to be back in time to record this episode. So I have got a guest host again. Guest host. Guest host. I feel like I, I always keep this like really mysterious, as if people don't know who it is. Um, but guest host, will you will you reveal yourself and introduce yourself? Hi, this is uh, Brooke Brown from Washington State. I'm super excited to be here today with y'all. Yeah, and we're we're excited to have you back. Um, we were we were joking before. It's at some point you'll need to meet Kevin, um, and you know be on here. And actually, getting your story on the show would be pretty dope. And uh, giving you that space to keep dropping those T-shirt quotes that you seem to always come up with. Um, yes, you are with two dope teachers and a mic. This is Revolution Summer Mixtape Track Five. And for those of you who aren't really familiar with mixtapes, they're not really familiar with the podcast. The summer is when we do our experimenting. The summer is when we try new things and we sort of take, we step back and we take a big look at the tapestry before us, which is this wild world um, that we're trying to navigate. And uh, some of us are back at school. Can you believe that some people are back at school already, Brooke? No. I, man, it's a, my, our, our hearts, thoughts and prayers. Uh, <laughs> to you <laughs> if you are teaching right now we can't really help in any other way but maybe some fire content is going to help you uh, navigate these days today we have a real treat um we've been able to bring on the imminent the amazing angela watson and so those of you who are not familiar with her angela watson founded the cornerstone for teachers years ago um which grew into truth for teachers a podcast that drops weekly uh, to support teachers and to give teachers a way to imagine something better. And um, most uh, most famously, she is known for the establishment of the 40-hour teacher work week, um, which is a professional development program that she does. Um, and that his, how many teachers did she say she has worked with? Like, is it Over like 45,000. Yeah, something like that. Or I feel like it may have been 145,000, but I also could oh, be maybe. wrong on that. It was a lot of people um, lot, who have done this lot. work. And, you know, I didn't say this in the interview, but um, but it's not exaggerating to say that Angela's 40-hour teacher work week uh, program saved my career, that I was ready to walk away. I was ready to quit. Um, I had been burning the candle on too many ends, trying to be too many things for too many people. As, uh, as BIPOC educators, I feel like we are uniquely pressured to be everything to everyone because literally there's no one else like us in most of our buildings. And um, so I, I took a shot, I invested, and um, you know, uh, one thing led to another and I became Colorado Teacher of the Year and I, and I really attribute a lot of that to, to Angela. Um, this was a good conversation, wasn't it? It was a great conversation. What can people look forward to, you think? Like little it's teasers. So, Some teasers. Uh, little teaser, I would say, like I thought it was gonna be good and the conversation was amazing. Yeah. I think there's so many great, um, just nuggets that she has um, to share and just the really important 
important things that we need to focus on yeah. uh, when we think about education today for teachers and all of you who support teachers. That's right. That's right. Because it really addresses the systemic um, issues that make this work so difficult and so grinding and so painful at times for everybody involved, not just for teachers, for students, for communities, for policymakers, for, well, maybe not for policymakers, they literally could make a difference, uh, for school leaders. Um, literally a policymaker can write a policy that would uh, address this, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Hashtag but ask a teacher. <laughs> ask a teacher, just, just a teacher that got to get that trending. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a pretty wide ranging conversation. And it's not just about um, having manageable systems in the classroom. It's also about how we evaluate our mindsets and the people that we teach and the people that we teach alongside of as we kind of get into this work. So super wonderful conversation. I think if you're struggling for optimism, if you're struggling for positivity, if you're struggling for something to get you through uh, this kind of march to the beginning of school, I think this is probably a good conversation for that. Absolutely. And the, and the process of becoming, I think she really talked a lot about this growth process and how we are um, moving towards becoming who we want to be um, and who we want to model for our students. And so okay. I think she has some really great tips and advice and encouragement to continue that, that good, that important work. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you're new to the show, um, make sure you give us a follow. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Two Dope Teachers. You can, find, you can like us at Facebook uh, by searching at Two Dope Teachers. You can email us with any feedback, questions, episode ideas, Two Dope Teachers at gmail.com. If you like the content that's coming to you and you would like it to keep on coming, uh, consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash Two Dope Teachers for as little as $5 a month. You can help us continue to bring you the incredible content that we strive to bring you uh, every week for the last five years or so. So without any further ado, uh, we're going to cut to the interview. We hope you enjoy this conversation that we have with Angela Watson, 40-Hour Teacher Work Week. Enjoy. All right, everybody, what is going on? What is really going on? As friend of the podcast, Boots Riley would say, I am Gerardo Munoz. Kevin is out at a really important conference um, and uh, we wish him well. He is very sad to miss this, but I have a guest host. Guest host, will you come out of the shadows and say who you are? Hey everyone, my name is Brooke Brown and I am the 2021 Washington State Teacher of the Year. And I am so excited to be here with y'all today. Well, here is excited to have you be here as well. And yes, it's Brooke again, who you know and love from the last one. Brooke, this might become a regular thing when Kevin is unavailable or when Kevin decides not to talk to me during PD and I'll just be like, you know, can you do the next one with Brooke? Get you, you know, that kind of thing. So at some point we'll have to have y'all meet. <laughs> I'm in, I'm that. in. Sounds great. I can't wait to meet him. It's great. Well, folks, um, we are super excited to bring to you an interview that has been elusive from my end for the last few weeks, but um, so, so fortunate to have Angela Watson here. And this is a name that is probably familiar to a lot of you. Angela Watson, who hosts the website Cornerstone for Teachers, uh, the podcast of, the, of a similar name, Truth for Teachers, and then also the founder 
and uh, leader and oh man, visionary. Like it's really hard to even think of what words to use to talk about you, Angela, of the 40-hour teacher work week. Angela, welcome to Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. It is so good to be here. I've been looking forward to this. I'm so glad and I've been looking forward to it and we've all been looking forward to it and it is just something to be looked forward to. So um, at the end of the show, you're gonna have a chance to learn about how you can follow Angela's work. Um, and I just want everyone to know that if you think you're going to poach a bunch of like, you know, free stuff, like off of here, we, we really want to protect, uh, you know, sort of the capacity Angela's built to make this so good and so quality. And so she'll share some stuff, but I'm not going to push her on things. She can share whatever she wants to share and we'll kind of <laughs> go from there. So, so the first question that, I mean, on Two Dope Teachers, we're all about teacher stories. We're all about educator stories how those who have become connected to the field of education kind of came to that space. So just would love to start with your story, how you came to education. Is there anything in your background, your upbringing that kind of led you to the field or did it happen sort of accidentally like it happened to me? <laughs> you know, I was one of those um, kids who always wanted to be a teacher since I was a little girl. I, I, I knew from a young age and, you know, I think, the more optimistic interpretation is that I just, you know, I have a gift and that's my talent. That's my mm. calling. But looking back now through a slightly more critical lens, I can see that like, I didn't feel like I actually had a lot of uh, opportunities open to me. Um, mm. I was raised in a really conservative uh, Southern Baptist family and women in my family did not work outside the home. We're not uh, career women. And so mm. I just didn't feel like um, like it, it, I didn't see a lot of different possibilities and, um, you know, all of my teachers I'd had were women. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's feels like something that I could do. And so right. I'm, I'm grateful that it, it worked out that way because I think it really vibes naturally with my talents, my gifts. Like I'm one of those people where the second I learn something new, I want to go tell someone else about it. Like, that's my favorite yeah. thing before I've even like mastered it myself. I'm like, oh my gosh, you have to hear about this cool thing. Let me show you how to do it before <laughs> I even know how to do it. So like I have that piece inside of me. Um, and I think that as a young teacher, if I had known what possibilities would grow out of my work in the classroom, I would have just been amazed. It's, it's beyond my comprehension because, um, you know, I started teaching in 1999 yeah. and, um, you know, the internet was still like sort of in its infancy at that point. Yeah. And so, so many of the things that I'm doing now, like obviously like we're doing a Zoom call podcast yeah. beyond the realm of anything I could have thought like, wow, I could be publishing books. I could be creating online courses one day. I could be doing, you know, instructional coaching. That was another yeah. thing I had no idea about in the nineties. So yeah. I feel like I've gotten so many really cool opportunities and it's just been exciting to be able to grow out of, um, you know, this love of teaching that I had earlier and, and to see just new paths open that I never could have envisioned for myself as a child um, has been really, really cool. Yeah, and I, I kind of imagine that, that that process of discovery has been accelerated in the last 15 months or so. Um, you know, one thing that's really fascinating to me that I was just kind of reflecting on in, a, in another interview and conversation is that the three of us right now are in three completely different parts of the country. And when Two Dope Teachers started, Kevin and I would, we would record whenever we were in the building at the same time and we both had the energy to do it and neither of us had to be home right away for things 
and in the off chance that my computer was charged, like all of these little sort of circumstances. Um, and now here we are uh, able to do this and make these kinds of connections. Um, you've done a really amazing job of adapting the work over the last year. So we'll kind of get into that in just a second. Um, also want to point out, we started teaching the same year, uh, yes. 1999, and we <laughs> found that out in our last conversation. So uh, that's pretty cool. It, it, um, I still tell my students I started teaching in the late 20, 20th century. And that makes them <laughs> feel like I'm really, really old. <laughs> and I kind of lean into it and it's fun. Um, what what uh, content did you teach? What was your subject and content grade level? Um, so my uh, bachelor's degree is in early childhood education, which is okay. K to three. I have a master's in curriculum and instruction, but um, I intentionally chose the younger kids because even in the late nineties, I could see the standardization of education becoming. I could see the testing coming. I could see yeah. the love of learning already. Like I could see the shifts and I was like, you know what? I want to stick with pre-K. I want to stick with kindergarten and I want to just like develop these kids' curiosity. I want to do play-based learning. I want to do child-centered learning. And I felt yeah. like early childhood was the place that I could do it. But what's interesting is as I've gotten older, like I've found myself more drawn to working with older students um, I started off in pre-K, then I started teaching second grade, then I started teaching third grade. As an instructional coach, I worked a lot with middle school. And yeah. um, it's 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 been interesting to see like that change in myself to 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 learn to connect with kids of different ages and and see the commonalities between teaching at the secondary level and teaching at the elementary level. Like there's so many best practices. Like in some ways, kids are kids, you know, yeah. like there's and they're they're all human. So they all have these same needs to be seen, to be valued, to be, you know, acknowledged for all that they are and all they bring to the table. And it's, it's really cool to see what that looks like at different age groups. But yeah, my, my passion is early childhood. Brooke, can you see yourself teaching early childhood? We're both high school teachers. <laughs> <laughs> I, that was going to be my comment is like, I just think they're like, it's almost like sainthood level for kindergarten teachers. <laughs> like anyone early childhood, kindergarten, like just the level of care and support and like differentiation that happens on a daily basis is like mind blowing to me. I've only taught high school and majority <laughs> 12th grade. So, yeah. oh <laughs> wow, so like adults. <laughs> <laughs> but I so agree that every kid is, you know, it's really they're really the same and and the more that we humanize our experience with them and support them uh, as humans first, right? And academics later like, yes, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, and having, you know, um, my, my spouse is an ECE teacher, and I can definitely vouch that ECE and early ed teachers are just built different, as my child would say, um, that the work is, is different. But, but it's funny how many times that we've had conversations where her students aren't really that different from the seniors that I work with. It's just, you know, they, they're at these transition points, and I feel like that's a really interesting uh, kind of point, but the notion of teaching children who just really don't know what school is like <laughs> is really fascinating to me. It is, yeah, it's it is a process because they walk in on that first day of pre-K and they just their tendency just like, oh, here's toys on the shelf, run over and play. Like, oh, no, we don't do that. <laughs> we come in, we have a process here, we have routines. You have to think about yep. like what the other children in the room are doing, and it's it is it is fascinating. Like I'm a person who just loves studying the human brain, how the mind works yeah, and to yeah. see them at that age. Um, you know, it is, 
it is an endless source uh, source of uh, entertainment for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> enjoyment, oh, yeah. laughter, you know, and it's just it's really cool to see them see them develop. That's cool. Brooks got a question, but I want to just share a quick story about uh, just to your point, you know, about how there's so much that they do need to learn and that they just don't know how to do when they get to school. Uh, her first year, there were, um, they had parents bringing snacks and one parent brought bananas that they cut in half, right? And so, um, so she passes the bananas out to the kids and they didn't really know what to do with them because they never like seen a banana in that like state before. So they just started <laughs> squeezing them. <laughs> and she's like, no, 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 no. Oh, wait, hold on. And, you know, it's one of those things. They're like, okay, no, actually, we might have to teach them how to peel a banana because for some of them, yep. their parents may have been doing it for them or they, you know, or they eat them like cut up and that kind of thing. And it just like, um, and the things that they say are just so amazing. But, you know, I think what she just loves about it is um, their, their daily process of discovery. Like how exciting is that to watch little ones just discover stuff? Um, what a cool thing. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm totally going to remember that story. Tell that story. I'm just going to I was just going to say, as we go back to, as we return back to the buildings, like shout out to all the, the parents buying school shoes. Like, remember Velcro is good. Velcro is good for the littles. <laughs> I'm like, yes. love a Velcro teacher <laughs> this fall, slip-ons and Velcro for the littles. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Maybe I, so I'm adults. a parent of four. I have four kids ranging from one to 18. So um, I am just so intrigued by your work with the 40 hour teacher work week and trying to find that balance as a, as a teacher and right. And fill in the blank, all the other things that um, that feed us as human beings and help us to be um, well balanced. So like, how did you decide to do this work? Like, what are your goals with this work and how has it changed over the years? You know, 40 hour um, I, is something that I just never thought it would turn into something as big as it is. Um, but I, I have this urge to want to solve big unsolvable problems in the world. Like that's really what drives me is I try to look at the problems that no one else is solving or that maybe we don't have comprehensive systems for, or that, you know, probably can't be solved altogether. And just think, what can I do to address this? Because yeah. Um, you know, when I first started supporting teachers online, it was just like through message boards, you know, in mm -hmm. the early 2000s, just sharing ideas and classroom pictures and things like that. And it really grew from there. I found I was like saying the same things over and over again. So I was like, mm -hmm. I wonder if I could have like some sort of website where I could just like write it one time and link people <laughs> to it and mm -hmm. just kind of like explored with that. And, you know, everything I've done really has, has grown out of that, but, you know, it would, I would notice that when teachers would ask for support with something, there was always a deeper problem that we weren't really talking about. There was always something more going on. So the problem is not that your papers aren't organized. The problem is um, maybe there are too many papers. Like you haven't yet distinguished between what's important and what's not. Um, you are afraid of throwing things away and needing them. So you're hoarding things. Um, you know, like there's, there's lots of other root things going on there. It's not just about like, here's a system for papers. And so what I noticed Sorry. when I was supporting teachers was like, you know, a lot of what we talked about in the beginning was like classroom management, right? Like, how do you get kids to like line up? How do you get them to, you know, to just do very basic things, particularly at the early childhood level. And what I realized is so much of this was really about how you see the world and hmm. what is your perspective on 
um, power in the classroom? Um, how do you see yourself as the authority and you're there to just present rules to kids and they should just follow them because you are in charge? Mm -hmm. Like your, your whole lens through which you see teaching is something that started to uncover. And I would notice that when we were sharing really good ideas, they didn't work for everybody. And the people they didn't work for were the ones who had these, these maybe limiting beliefs or a different perspective of looking at their students that um, just really wasn't serving them or their, or, or their kids well. And that's where I really started moving away from the practical ideas, more into mindset stuff, you know, and thinking about, you know, how, how do you think about yourself? How do you think about your work? How do you think about students? What do you think about the purpose of school? And that's when things really started to get interesting. So, you know, I published a book um, on mindset. It's called Awaken, Change Your Mindset to Transform Your Teaching. And um, I felt like that really hit a lot of important pain points. Like it got down to the root of the issue because I can give you teaching strategies all day. But if you are, you know, if you believe that you are powerless to make a difference, that you don't have any kind of um, ability to any agency basically in your school system, then you're not going to want to take action. So I felt like I started hitting a lot of those mindset pieces, but the, the larger looming problem was just the demands on teachers are increasing every single year. And it got to the point where I'm like, okay, this is not just a mindset thing. This is not just like, let me think about my time differently or let me approach my work differently. This is about like, I'm going to have to start setting some boundaries around what I will say yes and what I will say no to because the demands on teachers are impossible. And that's really where 40 hour came out of was realizing like, you know, you are contracted to work around 40 hours a week. Why is it that the norm for teachers is around 62 hours? That's 22 hours a week of unpaid labor that we're giving to schools that is propping up an underfunded system that would completely collapse without teachers working on their own. And so I really, really wanted to tackle that. I didn't know what the solution was, but like, I've got to do something. <laughs> And I, I love that. It's, it's, uh, it's incredible to, to think about that, that, because I've, I think, I, I feel like I've said that, exa that exact phrase to folks that the entire system collapses without the things that we voluntarily do, voluntarily do without pay. And that we do because we love the kids and because we love the communities or because it aligns with a passion that we have and that kind of thing. And, um, and I feel like that's the scary conversation that a lot of schools and, and districts and system, the system as a whole just does not want to have. That's know? right. Yeah, and I think it's so important though, you bring up such a good point about how leaning into the conversations and the work, even when we don't know the solution, because I think there's so much um, that we think about is like the end goal or where we want it to go. So I really appreciate how you're like, let's lean into the process. Let's kind of let this see how this, um, how this takes place and, and really just identifying um, how we can not only support teachers, but also shift the system uh, within, um, you know, that teachers are, are working within. That's right. Because if we have to have all the answers before we start, then we're never going to do anything important, right? Like you really do learn through that process and being willing to take the risks. So um, yeah, that, so that's what 40 hour has been. And, you know, to date we've had almost 45,000 teachers um, go through the program. So and I'm one of them. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's been um, it's been amazing, and it's been really cool also to to introduce uh, forty hour for instructional coaches and forty hour for leadership. Um, yeah. And the leadership, I think, is we just began that this summer, so we're just starting to work with these visionary school leaders who are reading the writing on the wall and saying we can no longer teach treat teachers like disposable resources mm. who we can just burn out and then replace with new ones. Because guess what? No one else is signing up to do that job or any other job in which you are, your working conditions are, are horrible. Like, like look across the board right now at society. People are saying, this is enough now. This yeah. is enough. I'm tired of being yeah. taken advantage of and I'm just not doing this anymore. And I think COVID was in in many ways, the breaking point for so many Mm -hmm. teachers where, you know, it was the, the, the wake up call, they always kind of knew their district didn't value them. And then to see their safety, their, their personal health sidelined for political reasons, for, you know, whoever they were, you know, the, the leadership or politicians were kowtowing to, I think was so demoralizing for so many educators. And I think we're hitting a, a pivotal moment in education where teachers are prepared to set boundaries better than they ever have before yeah. to really draw a line in the sand about what they're willing to sacrifice for this job. And I think we have a growing number of school leaders who see that, who wow. care deeply about not only their students, but also the teachers. They care yeah. about their staff. They want their staff um, to have better work-life balance. They just don't know how to make it work because it's not like yeah. principals have endless time themselves. Like right. they're caught in the same toxic system too. Yeah. They just don't know what to do. So trying to connect these kinds of leaders to other leaders who also care about the same thing is really, really important to me because I think we have to shift a norm. Like what I want to do is sort of use you know how like districts are always in competition with each other? Like they're worried about like, oh, this district had better test scores or this one had better retention rates, whatever. Right. I want to set Even this Even school number. to school, like school to school, yes. they'll do that. Yeah. Absolutely. There's so much competition. Like I, can I use that as an, as like an endpoint to say, you know, there are other schools that are doing this better, right? Like, you know, there are other schools who have already figured out how to make staff meetings more valuable for teachers and shorten them and gotten rid of all these email protocols. And like their teachers are thriving. Their teachers are not burning out. Their teachers know that if a parent emails them at 11 o'clock at night, there is no expectation for them to respond until the next day. Like there are other schools who have done this and that's true. So it's up to the other schools to catch up. Yeah. We need to get the rest of our schools there. Kind of a reframing it as this problem that you view as unsolvable and intractable. There are actually ways that it's being, there is another way and it's being done and it's being done maybe even in your community. And I think that, I think that's, uh, you know, because I I think, I think the folks, I'm not going to draw any conclusions about the folks who are encouraging competition like whatever they can kind of think that way if they want to but the, the i think that one way to to take a macro view is to understand that there are lots of schools in a given community or system um and that we can actually learn from each other rather than um competing with them there was there was a school in my old neighborhood um that had on its billboard um what you know what is your neighborhood school's math math proficiency level and it's just like come on man like that's how's that helping the community as a whole now that school (laughs) that school no longer exists and so you can kind of draw some conclusions there um I you know so there the thing I love about um 40-hour teacher work week is that you don't have to like do it all. And, and I'm, I'm kind of old school. It's hard for me to read things on a screen. 
Uh, but I can listen to podcasts all day. So there's always the audio and it's like 10 minutes and I can listen to it on my way into work. Like it's just so easy that way. But it's like one of those things where if you do one thing, um, you know, a little bit differently, then it kind of sets you on your own path to find um, what's more sustainable for you. And now I'm, I'm happy to say, I can't even remember the last time I checked my school email from home. Um, my principal has to text me um, if it's something really, really urgent and, you know, but she also knows that that's, that that's a boundary. So I have so many questions about the leadership piece of it. Um, it's really, it's really encouraging to hear that there are leaders who are, who are also weary of the system as it is. What are you hearing from leaders as far as the, um, like the, the kind of barriers they have to overcome to, you know, I mean, your book title is, uh, it's something along the lines of more, it's like, uh, fewer things better. Right. Yeah. And fewer so things better. Yeah. are they struggling with this concept of fewer things better? What are the barriers that, that leaders talk about when it comes to, um, adopting your approach? So I think leaders are facing a lot of the same challenges as teachers is feeling like so much of what they are doing is beyond their control. They're mandated to do it. It wasn't their choice. They know it's not really moving the needle for kids, but it's something they have to do. And so, I mean, really my message to everyone, in, in, no matter what your role is, is the buck has to stop somewhere. Yeah. And as long as we keep perpetuating um, bad practices for students under the guise of, well, I don't have a choice like some really bad things have happened in history by people saying I was just following orders. I was just Oof. doing what I was told. So do we truth. really, like how, how much, at what point, if a global pandemic isn't the turning point, like at what point do we say enough is enough? I'm not doing that. I don't care if you told me to do it. Like I'm not doing that, you know? And I really feel like school leaders um, have an impetus to protect teachers from bad policy. Um, it is not your job to, um, to just do whatever you're told. Your job is to filter what's happening at the district level um, through a lens of what's best for the humans in your building. And, um, you know, I think it, it's going to take people standing together to say this isn't right. Um, and it's not necessarily like this big battle. It's just a matter of finding a better way. You know, like we're talking about, uh, for example, holding meetings after school. A lot of schools in non-unionized states, um, I'm hearing now, are actually scheduling staff meetings, IEP meetings and stuff after contractual hours. Teachers are done at three and they're scheduling meetings from three to four on a regular basis. Um, I was stunned to hear this. I had no idea that that was even a thing. I cannot imagine in any other profession when someone's shift ends at five o'clock saying, now we have a meeting from five to six, like on, huh. a, on a regular basis. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. And so I, it's a matter of, you know, when we talk about ways to create change, it's like you're saying, Gerardo, it's not like, you know, you have to do everything different. And also it doesn't mean like, like, oh, I'm not doing this. It's coming up with better solutions. Like when else can we meet? Maybe we don't need to meet so often. Maybe we could have a meeting every other week instead of every week. Maybe we could do this, you know, we could brainstorm in a Google doc beforehand so that we're not spending 20 minutes after school brainstorming. Like there's so many ways um, that we can reduce bureaucracy and inefficiencies in the way that we do school. So many ways. 
And I really think it's, it's going to take educators in all different positions to say, we have to think outside the box. We've got to get creative and say, I'm just not accepting this. Like this is, we all know that this is ridiculous. This is not working. It is draining our energy. Um, and it's pulling us away from the things that actually make a real difference for kids. So let's see if we can come up with something even marginally better, just yeah. small changes, you know, yeah. yeah, just reduce this one meeting and then yeah. maybe reduce this one other expectation. And then, you know, maybe there's one other way you can do this other thing. And now you've just given your entire staff an extra hour a week. Like that makes a big difference in terms yeah. of morale, like protecting teachers planning time is like, that's like my number one thing with school leaders. Yeah. If teachers feel like you value their time and you're giving them time to work in their classrooms and do the tasks that we know are essential to student learning, like planning lessons and assessing student learning, um, we can't, if those things are so key, we can't expect teachers to do that all on their own time unpaid. Yeah. Why are we planning lessons and grading papers on evenings and weekends? Yeah. Like no other country does this. Yeah. You know, like no one else does this. Teachers are given hours Uniquely a day. American. <laughs> yes. And like, have, have and we you just studied accept other, it. Uh, have you studied other like systems and, and how they function in comparison to the American system? Like as I far have. as just the, the work of the teacher? Yeah, like the, the amount of face-to-face -face time that American teachers have is, is higher than any other, um, wow. you know, country that we try to compare ourselves to when we're looking at test scores and things like that. Yeah. You know, typically teachers may have 10 to 15 um, hours of instructional time a week in other countries, whereas here could be 25, you said a 30 week. hours. A week. You said a week. A week. Wow. Wow. A week. They're having <laughs> hours a day, um, yeah. you know, to uh, collaborative planning and assessment time and time to think deeply about their practice rather than being expected to you know, to go home and do that on a Sunday afternoon. It's just like, we have accepted something that does not have to be this way. And that really is like one of my biggest goals with all the educators I work with is to really question the status quo, question what is, and, and imagine something better. We talked so much about reimagining education because of the pandemic and it didn't really happen. And I think in many times we're looking for people outside of ourselves to do that work for us. I don't want anyone else to reimagine what's possible for me. I, I, you know, like I, I want to be the visionary. I want to have a say in that. And so that's something I really encourage educators to do. Like you bring the vision to the table. What do you want to see? What would make your work rewarding? What would really make a difference for your students and be able to articulate that, to advocate for that and to look for even small ways to move toward that. I think that's really where the change is made. So, you know, it's, there are times when I just get really frustrated, want to burn the whole thing down. Yeah. But, um, you know, given that that's not really feasible, <laughs> like let's, let's work with small changes. Let's go the opposite way. We'll work with small go. changes add up to big results. That's our motto in 40 hour. <laughs> small changes add up to big results. So, so, so Brooke is all about this. I see, I see you smiling and laughing <laughs> over there. Uh, Brooke and I also, whenever we have conversations, we we're always on the lookout for t-shirt slogans. And so protect teachers from bad policy. I'm not sure if that's a t-shirt or a bumper sticker or a coffee <laughs> mug, but I think that's really good. And then imagine something better. Man, that's that freedom dream. Brooke, yeah. what do you got to say? <laughs> yes. So I, I just appreciate you so like, oh my goodness, I appreciate you so much. And I just want to really point out something that I think you made really clear, but really connect the dots for folks is that this doesn't have to be a either or, um, you know, 
demanding or advocating or asking for a 40 hour work week does not mean you care less about students. Mm -hmm. It actually means we care more because we know that, that we can, once we're, once we have something sustainable, once we feel validated, we can continue with this difficult work because we know that every profession that is, you know, every viable profession is because of teachers and we know how important teachers are. And so really thinking about, I have never seen, um, well, I shouldn't say I've never seen, cause that's, there has been a lot of weaponizing of care um, throughout this pandemic. And, and I think throughout our careers as educators that, well, if you care, then fill in the blank, you'll do this. And so it makes me think of my grocery. I used to work at a grocery store when I was in high school. And when, you know, we clocked in and clocked out, but I could never manage, imagine my manager being like, can you come in an hour early? It'll be helpful to keep lines down and carts moving. You know, it's, it, it, you would say, it, what? But it's become so commonplace in the educational setting. And, and so often it's like, well, if you're asking to get paid, then are you just here for a paycheck? And clearly we're here because we love kids. Clearly we're here because we realize the impact that, that um, we can have on young people. And it's important that we understand that when we have those boundaries, that when we um, are able to try to pursue a balanced life, that not only are we helping ourselves, but we're modeling it for our students because we would never want our students to be in a situation that was not helpful for their humanity, that wasn't helpful. So I think as if we can't do it for ourselves, then we have to do it for our kids. And we have to understand that we're modeling um, what we need uh, for young people. And so um, I would just, I, I'm such a champion for, for equity and, and social justice and really thinking about um, how does a 40 hour um, uh, teacher work week support uh, equitable practices? Well, everything you just said right there, Brooke, that's why you're teacher of the year. <laughs> because <laughs> yep that was brilliant that was brilliant um you know the this this piece about how we have to prove how much we care for kids it's like whoa that's a, that is a deep one and I think there's so much guilt tripping uh on teachers like you should do it because you care about the kids and I think that was stretched to a breaking point over COVID um you know as teachers learned an entirely new way to teach it was um that's really, really intense. And I think we really have to disassociate the number of hours worked with effectiveness to stop assuming that just because someone is working longer hours, they care more and yes. someone who has better boundaries cares less. I think you make a really strong point that, um, you know, we do a better job for kids when we do have those boundaries. So I wanted to affirm, thank you for, for connecting those dots. And, you know, to your question about, about equity and 40 hour, I think folks are drawn, drawn to 40 hour because they want to have more time. That's the obvious goal. But as they start getting deeper into the practices, they realize how much of this is about everything that you're talking about here. It's about challenging norms. It's about challenging the status quo. And for many teachers, you know, in a, in a largely um, white female profession, you know, we are not taught to challenge the system. I certainly was not um, in, in, in my upbringing. Um, this, the system was um, something that you do not question. It's ordained. We have hierarchies in place for a reason. 
Um, we had the folks in charge who are, are there for a reason and you listen to them and you, you follow authority. And I think we have a lot of teachers like that. And we also have a lot of teachers who are people pleasers, you know, women in our, in our culture um, are, are conditioned to, um, to care about what other people think of them, how they are viewed. Many of us are rule followers. We're just uh, used to upholding power structures. So learning how to question things like, why do we equate hours worked with effectiveness? Why do we assume that people staying latest are best at their jobs? Why do we feel the need to, to do certain things to prove to other people that we're in this profession for the right reasons? Why are there even... Why is there even an expectation that you have to be in this profession for altruistic reasons? It's a career. Like maybe yeah. you're in this because you really like this as your job. And it's not like, you know, this, this deeper calling or this, right. this mission or something like that. So I think once teachers start to question those sorts of things, they realize how much they do as teachers um, is not actually centered around what students need. Um, and it's really centered around um, just upholding norms, not looking like a slacker, making sure you look dedicated to kids, make sure you're keeping everyone happy, making sure students like you, making sure parents like you, make sure administrators like you. Those kinds of pressures, you know, whether they're internal or external, are very real for teachers, just trying to keep everyone with these conflicting expectations happy. And I think once you start pulling at that thread a little bit, your whole way of looking at the world sort of unravels. And, you know, it's not that way for everyone. Um, but I've heard from so many folks in 40 Hour who started to see the connection between questioning the status quo in teaching and questioning, for example, um, gendered expectations, uh, questioning the patriarchy, understanding the history of the teaching profession, why it's still seen as a calling today that you should do for altruistic reasons. And therefore, you don't need to be compensated fairly. Like this is this is your mission on the planet. You don't need to make a lot of money doing it. Um, you know, once you can start to examine those sorts of injustices for yourself, you can start to see injustices toward students and you start to notice discriminatory, discriminatory policies um, and that sort of thing and, and how we're demanding far too much of students that doesn't really matter and we're leaving them unchallenged in ways that could be really helping them thrive. So, so much of 40 hour is really just about questioning norms and expectations, about being really intentional about what you say yes to, what you say no to, and how you spend your time. So my hope is that it's sort of like a gateway into reimagining systems and policies and institutions. If you can just first think about how you use your own time, that process of, of interrogation and evaluating and noticing power structures, noticing unspoken expectations, that's a really powerful process to learn to think in that way. So I'm, I'm hoping not to tell teachers what to think or what to do, but how to think and lead teachers to see the need for agency for other groups of people too. Once you understand this is why we need unions, this is why we need teachers sticking together and organizing, you start to see the value of organizing for other people, even if you were raised as a white woman like myself who, who didn't see that sort of thing coming up, who didn't have that kind of that, that background or, you know, who, who fit into the system. The systems were in many ways designed for us. So once you can learn to start questioning that and to notice ways that um, you've kind of been bamboozled, you know, like 
teachers are taken advantage of. Teachers are taken, their, their goodwill towards children has been stretched. And you can start to look to see how other groups of people have also experienced the same thing. And that intersectionality of, of working for justice and equity, I, again, I just think it's a thread. You just start pulling it and the whole thing starts to like, it, it starts to click for people. And that's really, really exciting for me to help teachers to think more critically about the systems that they're operating in. It's not about individuals. It's not about you and your personality or finding the right principle. We're looking at systems of school. How are institutions set up? Because what's happening right now to teachers and kids is coming from policy. And um, policy is maybe not the most exciting thing to a lot of people. But once you start to realize how much it impacts your daily work, it starts to become exciting. And I think that activist part of teachers um, can be reignited in a way that's really, really helpful and constructive. Yeah, all of that. <laughs> Just want to let everyone know uh, that when this episode drops, the Two Dope Teachers Twitter feed will be an Angela Watson stand account. And we're <laughs> going to be unapologetic for the first few days of downloads there. I mean, it's it's funny, like, just to hear you verbalize, because that's exactly what my experience with 40-hour teacher work week was, because it starts, because the programs, it, more than anything, it just starts asking questions of you and, and of your surroundings. And, you know, the, the one that really broke through for, there were two that really broke through for me. I'm not going to spill the beans on, you know, the whole program. People need to invest in it, because I think that was an important part of it was, being able to invest and really buy in and say, okay, I'm going to try this and I'm going to uh, work with it. Plus I got those uh, PD hours. So that was really good too. But, <laughs> but the, the first thing was, well, you don't have to grade everything. And I was like, oh, well then what am I, what am I doing with what I have kids doing in class? What am I doing with kids it, with the stuff I have them doing class every day. And what that ended up doing was getting me connected through social media to some incredible people I've met who are part of the ungrading movement. And I don't mm. think I would have even been open to that idea if not for that program. And the other thing, and this might surprise you, the other thing was meal prep because I was running into, okay, not enough time to actually make good food and not enough time to handle any of that. And so I'm just gonna buy a whole bunch of food from you know, fast food and restaurants, well, that wasn't good health-wise. And so it kind of set me on this other path of like wellness and all kinds of things that I've kind of shared, even with my students when they're kind of like, man, I don't have time to like do this, that, and the other thing. And so I'm asking, whoa, why do you think that is? Like, what, what are the things that are preventing? And you start modeling that with students. And so it was just really amazing because there is this thing, and Brooke, we've talked about this in, in our, in, amongst ourselves and in our group, about how really nurturing yourself and really um, protecting your peace is, is something that is ultimately good for everybody and it puts us on a path to liberation. That's yes. right, and I think you've both spoken to that, that important piece of modeling that, for students, right? Yeah. Go ahead, Brooke. Yeah, I was just gonna say, and that it's not selfish. I think as a, I love that you said, well, I, maybe not, I don't love that you said, but I agree with what you said about how many teachers are people pleasers because and rule followers, because I'm a recovering people pleaser and I'm learning and unlearning so many things. And that um, it's really important that um, 
when we think about taking care of ourselves and we think about starting to push against the status quo and questioning those norms, that that's not selfish. And so I think, you know, the way that um, I grew up in, in thinking about those things, I just, you know, you just do what you're, is expected and what you're asked to do. And so really unlearning things helps us to really start to um, live a much fuller, balanced, um, on the path to, to liberation uh, existence that when we can do that, um, we allow other people to do the same. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So uh, we're going to take a break in just a moment. So takeaways from this first part of the podcast. A, in capitalism, it is helpful to have money to get through it. And so you should not be ashamed of the fact that you do actually need to be compensated for the work and for the gifts that you bring. And, uh, and the second thing is that when we protect our peace and our wellness um, and we start asking really important questions, that proves to be a really important disruption to so many toxic systems that we find ourselves in the crosshair of. Stay with us. You are listening to Two Dope Teachers and a Mic. Your answer is two or less. You are not alone. We know that black teachers are under attack. And with all the conversation happening about black teacher recruitment, shouldn't we be talking about retention too? So where are all of our black teachers? I'm so glad you asked. In the new monthly podcast series from Tudo Productions, the exit interview coming in late January, Asia Lyons. Hey y'all. And me, Kevin Adams talk with former black educators who've been pushed out of the classroom. We want to know their stories. Who or what made them leave? How was their family affected by the push out? And most importantly, what are they doing now that they've left the classroom? If you'd like to be on the exit interview, reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter at Two Dope Teachers or email us at twodopeteachers at gmail.com. daily for sure oh that's true no we do have those daily interactions what's up everybody that amazing voice you are hearing as we come back into this episode is brooke brown 2021 washington state teacher of the year i'm gerardo muñoz you are on two dope teachers in a mic and if you're kind of confused kevin is away kevin misses you kevin's crying for you at this conference that he's attending and kevin cannot wait to be back with you um, when he is back. And we got a lot of cool stuff coming up as we close off the mixtape for the summer. And Angela, I don't know if I mentioned to you, you are track five of the Revolution Summer Mixtape. So right. this is when we start getting into, mixtapes are experimental. Mix, mixtapes are like, here's some things that we haven't put out there before, some voices we haven't heard as much before. And we're just going to get them out there and see what people get. So um, if you are new to the show, y'all, uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to us on Spotify. You can also get a transcript courtesy of ACAST, which has been amazing. Shout out to my dude, Anthony Coy Gonzalez, the Ohio State Teacher of the Year, 
who brought to my attention that the community he serves, he serves uh, deaf and hearing impaired students, um, don't have access to audio podcast content as easily as others. And so uh, he and I put our heads together and we were able to get transcripting for this. So if you are somebody who, need, who would love to have the transcript of any of these shows, uh, those will be posted on our website. You can also follow us on, two, on Twitter and Instagram at Two Dope Teachers and on Facebook, Two Dope Teachers. Facebook. Why can't I remember any of our social media handles anymore? At <laughs> Facebook. At no, not at Facebook. This is wild. Uh, at Two Dope Teachers on Facebook. I'm going to stop with that and we're going to get into the next set of questions with our amazing guest, Angela Watson of Truth for Teachers of the Cornerstone for Teachers and uh, most famously, the 40-hour teacher work week. So one of the conversations that I think you and I have had at different points, um, Angela, since we've connected, is this idea of systemic racism. And you were just talking about uh, systems. You are talking about understanding that what we see teachers struggling with often is not a matter of that teacher is disorganized or not as smart. I feel like that's the, the latest thing is, and that's been around for a really long time that, well, you know, if you were really that good at what you're doing, why would you become a teacher, right? There's a real lack of respect for the intellect of the public educator. Um, so we talk about these systems, your knowledge of systemic racism, um, and especially the disproportionate attrition of Black and Indigenous people of color educators from the profession, how has that knowledge informed some of the work that you've done around 40-hour teacher work week and, and your work in general? So, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the cornerstone for teachers because I'm actually uh, right in the middle of transitioning that over to I, Truth I for heard, teachers. I heard. <laughs> yeah, we are doing a rebrand. So it was called the cornerstone because that was the name of my first book back in 2008. And so no. I just went with that. It was called the cornerstone classroom management that makes teaching more effective, efficient, and enjoyable. And a lot has changed since 2008. Um, I like to think that I've grown a lot as a person. I want yeah. my my site and my work to grow along with it. And, and what I found is that sometimes people try to box me in to the types of resources I was sharing earlier. Like, well, I want my practical teaching tips. And I'm like, we're doing a whole lot more here than that. And so um, I really think Truth For Teachers um, which is the name of my podcast, um, which Gerardo has been on in this past Yay. season. So make sure so you check fun. that out. That's a Love great it. episode to start with if you are new to Truth <laughs> and Teachers. Um, but it it has, um, you know, we, we talk about a lot of different topics on there. And um, so we are going to be expanding beyond the podcast into uh, a collective of writers. Um, I have a really amazing, uh, diverse group of writers who really have a common shared set of values and vision for the work mm. that we're doing in schools, really trying to uh, be really conscious and intentional in their work and working to create a more just and compassionate uh, educational system. And so they are, uh, they're writing for me and they are also guests on the podcast. And I'm just really excited to kind of move from a brand that has been focused on me to a brand that is focused on we and what we can do together, because I think it really, uh, it's so much bigger than just what I can do alone. As I've said several times today, like I, I feel like our, our strength is in our numbers and it's in organizing together. And so I really want to amplify the voices of classroom practitioners. I am not in the classroom myself. And I think um, it is tragic to see tr teachers 
voices and expertise left out of conversations about what's happening in schools or to see them sidelined or marginalized. So I really want to center the work of classroom practitioners um, and people who maybe don't fit the typical demographic of, of teachers, um, I think is really important. So Truth for Teachers is a really um, is a big place for me to be doing that. Our, our tagline is going to be real talk from real educators. And we're talking about the realities of K-12 education. We're not sugarcoating. We're not keeping things fun and positive and light. Like we are going to keep it real. And that's what I've been, that's what I've been doing. I mean, if anyone has been following me for a while, this is not really a huge shift. I'm just taking the time now to articulate this goal, um, to articulate this vision and really draw people into the, in, to invite them to look deeper, basically. So it's not just about, you know, how do we collect papers more efficiently, but like, why, why are we, why do we need to collect papers more efficiently? Why are we using paper? Why was this assignment given? What are we doing once we have this assignment? How is this a value to students? Like really like let's dig deeper. There are people who are still kind of like at the surface level and I really want to take things deeper. So um, yeah, so that, that's, that's one separate thing. I could talk about 40 hour as well, but I'll, I'll give you space to respond to that. Cause that was a whole mouthful. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. What you're looking at is um, collecting these other perspectives and, you know, sort of representing those um, to a wider world. So will that be, will that be opinion pieces, practical pieces? What, what will, what should people expect to see on Truth for Teachers? It's a mix. It's a mix of what's working in their classroom, of reflections on their own development as an educator. Um, we're covering all kinds of different topics from um, limiting beliefs, to grading practices, to um, how do we better support uh, neurodivergent students, like all different kinds of things that, that teachers are learning. Um, you know, I feel like it's really important to offer personal development as well as professional development. I'm really passionate about blending those two things. Again, like really thinking about the lens, the person you are that's showing up in the classroom. And these writers, I think, really do an amazing job blending those two things and really thinking about like who they are as people and um, who do they want to be for students rather than just like, what are we doing with students? I think that's so powerful to really think about um, just really diverse voices. And so um, I'm just sort of thinking about sort of coming um, into the fall and and just the the great loss that all of us have experienced throughout this pandemic and just really thinking about how many um, fantastic teachers we have that have left the classroom and yes. and how many who are staying but who um, I just see on Twitter so much and on on the Facebook just so many people who are starting tired who are starting um, just at a point of like here we go. I'm not, we're doing this, but, you know, just not really, um, I don't know, if, I don't know if we're ever really ready, but I just mean like <laughs> much more challenges um, and layers this year returning to the classroom. And so just really thinking about specifically how that lands for educators of color, you know, so many um, educators of color suffer from racial battle fatigue and thinking about how, um, how might your work with Truth For Teachers um, and the 40-hour work week really reflect the sensitivity to our unique challenges as educators of color? I sense that that exact same thing, Brooke, that like people were sort of waiting for the usual back-to-school enthusiasm to come, and it's just not this year. Like one summer is not enough to heal from the past 18 months of trauma. 
Um, it's, it has been a lot. And I think the mood is darker um, right now at back to school than, um, than possibly I've ever seen. And um, there's a lot going on right now. And then I think when you move past COVID into also this manufactured um, um, battle against what we're apparently calling CRT now, apparently anything that has to do with talking about an unwhitewashed version of history now is CRT. And it's, um, you know, I, I see the pushback that teachers are getting, things that they've been doing in their classroom for many years. I mean, we talked about, I mean, multicultural education is something we've been doing since the 90s. So to suddenly see just something about just like supporting uh, just basic cultural competency as now being something that is forbidden for teachers to express. I can't imagine the toll that that would take um, as, as an educator of color. While we are saying at the same time, you need to support students and who they are. We need to uh, differentiate for their needs. We need to, to build relationships with them, but we can't actually see students for all the way they are. And you can't express parts of you um, you know, that, that we deem unacceptable. And I think that toll on top of everything else right now is really, um, really, it's putting us in a difficult perspective in education. So I affirm everything that you said and to your question about like, what am I doing? Um, you know, or how does my work help with that? I think one thing that I've been grappling with a lot, particularly over the past year is um, not waiting for consensus in order to move forward. Um, and no longer trying to meet everyone where they're at. Because I have learned from um, activists, from um, particularly you know, Black and Latinx um, activists who have said, you know, if we look at the history, if we wait until everyone is on board, we're never going to have any forward progress. Um, so this idea of meeting people where they're at is a very, is like a, it's a nice nice white lady idea, but it's maybe not reality. <laughs> so that we can't actually do that. So if someone is, is back on cultural competency 101, uh, or they're back on remedial cultural competency, we're like, I don't see color. You know, it's 2021. Yeah, it's time we to start can't. reading. It's time yes. to start reading. You got a lot of catching up to do. That's right. We, we cannot meet them um, where they're at. It's their responsibility to get where we are. And I resisted that for a long time. I really thought it was, you know, and I was also trying to listen to people of color who were saying, it is your job as a white person to educate other white people. Do not put that all on us to be constantly teaching them about these racist systems that we didn't create. Um, but if a stranger on the internet is engaging in bad faith and, and offering me straw man arguments, I don't have an obligation to spend my time and energy trying to help them. That's really not going to make the difference. And I have learned that the hard way from wasting a lot of time arguing with strangers on the internet, uh, particularly during the Trump era. You know, I, I, I look back and I'm like, that was not how change is made. Well, or maybe it is, but that's not... Maybe. <laughs> I don't want to spend my time like that, especially when I have a platform. And that's the other thing that I really had to realize is, you know, for some people engaging one-on-one -on -one, um, with individual folks is it could be a great use of time. You can really come alongside them and maybe change some, change some minds and hearts, who knows? Um, or perhaps more importantly, change some policies and systems. Um, but I don't want to spend my time like that. And it has been hard for me to learn that because I don't want to leave, leave anyone stuck in ignorance, particularly teachers, because I, I know that their worldview is deeply harmful to kids. And so it bothers me to just be like, well, we're just going to move on without them. 
So when I really started reflecting on this more deeply, I realized that when it's urgent for someone to learn something, you really don't have the luxury at going at a pace that's comfortable for them. And if we work at the pace of the slowest, most reluctant group of white folks, nothing will ever change. And you don't make progress. Again, looking historically, this is why it's so important to understand history, to understand um, how progress has been made in this country, how civil rights, how human rights have been advanced in this country. You don't do that. No one has ever done that by getting every single person to have all the background knowledge that they should have before you move on. You will never move on if you're trying to, um, to, to circle back like that. And, you know, and when I think about even how we learn other things, you know, if you're, if you're trying to teach students three-digit multiplication and you realize that many of them have not memorized the times tables, you can't say, okay, well, we're not going to do three-digit multiplication and we're going to spend the next two months getting you to memorize times tables. And said, so you have to identify how to fill in the gaps um, to scaffold for them. How can they be successful with this task, even without having all of this other background knowledge, without being totally ready for this task? We got to do this. And so what can we do um, to help them rise to the call of this moment? And we don't have time to go back to everything that they, quote, should have learned a long time ago. Maybe they weren't ready for, maybe they weren't taught it appropriately. Maybe they weren't interested in it. There's lots of reasons why people may not be ready to learn the things that we're telling them. But it's my job to teach you this particular skill. That's what we're going to do. And so I really feel like as, as, as white people, I mean, I really can't speak to what people of other races have a responsibility to do in this area. But as white people who have undertaken the process of interrogating our belief systems, I think we need to keep pushing forward and not always circling back over and over again for the folks who still have not come on board, who just witnessed everything that we've seen. Like, just, just think about what you've seen in your own lifetime. Like, what have we even just seen like in the last five years? If you see all of that and you're still not on board, you still don't want to do better. Um, you know, like I, I can't come back for you. I really need to keep moving forward with like-minded folks. So I would say particularly in the last year or so, I've really shifted my mindset from trying to educate white folks who are back on cultural competency 101 to saying, we're moving forward here into deeper understandings. And I'm from now on, I'm operating from the assumption that you're with that, that you are doing your own work. You're not just relying on me to hold your hand through it, that you share this goal of making our schools and our planet a more compassionate place, a more equitable place for the next generation. So I just work from that baseline assumption now. And if a person's not there yet, then it's gonna be them who feels uncomfortable rather than people of color and white folks who have done the work already feeling uncomfortable. Like, oh my gosh, now we gotta go back and we gotta address this microaggression. No, like who, who should feel uncomfortable here? You know, like who, who is benefiting from staying from our silence on these things? Who was benefiting from us circling back to try to help these people over and over? So that's a very long way of me saying, like for me, it's been about learning to center the needs of marginalized people rather than comforting the, the people who don't wanna get on board with it. So I don't spend my time anymore on folks who are resistant to progress. Um, there are definitely still people in my audience like that. There are, I'm sure, people in 40 Hour who are like that. But my primary concern is making sure that folks on the margins have their needs centered in the communities that I'm responsible for. And I just operate from that place. This is who I am. I'm unapologetic about it. This is the goal. And you're welcome to come on board. But I can't keep going back to try to convince you that we need to go in this direction. And I don't think that we have to get everyone convinced in order to get to where we need to go. Woo!
big sacks. <laughs> like, man, mic drop. Like, let's go. Yes. Where have you been all of my life? We're oh going to start God. calling that a two dope teachers and a mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yes. Yes. So um, my mentor recently said that uh, my energy matters and who gets it matters. And mm. so I think you are modeling that so beautifully in that you're not discounting anyone. You're not excluding anyone. You're just saying, this is where our energy is going to go. And you're building to that and you're still supporting. And I think so much of the sort of critical uh, or critics have keep, keep saying this work is divisive. And I think you are demonstrating how beautiful, um, this is not divisive, right? You just gotta get on board and it's about humanity. It's about love and it's about forward progress and it's about seeing everyone for who they are. And so I just wanna say thank you for um, just your commitment to this work, um, for your ability to call folks in, to ask difficult questions and to continue to sustain folks in this work. And this work is challenging and it's difficult. So like, I just wanna know, I, I've been thinking a lot about joy. I've been thinking a lot about um, how to help my students pursue it. I, I, how can we be um, daily pursuers of joy? How can we chase it down? How can we um, run after it? And so like, what gives you joy um, doing this difficult work in this really anxious moment in our history? You know, I think what brings me joy more than anything else is seeing this new generation of kids being more free than we were at their age. And this may sound a little weird, but TikTok is my happy place. TikTok gives me hope for humanity. And they say that the algorithm gives you more of what you wish the world was like. Whatever you wish there was more of in the world is what the algorithm shows you. And what I see on TikTok is exactly what I want the world to be like. I see young people who are liberated from expectations. They are showing up in the world as their true authentic selves in ways that I never could have imagined growing up in 90s white evangelical purity culture. So, you know, in the midst of all of this chaos and upheaval to see young women, especially, and to see young women of color, even more so really coming into their own, to loving their bodies, to, uh, to loving their skin, to loving their hair, to loving who they are, to loving the people that they want to love, to owning their power, to, you know, really just speaking their minds and creating their own seats at the table, to building their own tables, um, to be, liberated from the social constraints constraints that I feel like I'm still trying to interrogate at my age to see them be so much more free um you know wearing what they want to wear being who they want to be valuing their time like this young generation is like no my labor counts for something I, I demand more in exchange for turning over you know 40 hours a week of my time like I, I want to have I, I deserve more than that as a human. I'm not just a cog in your machine. Like to see that from young people just brings me so much joy because I know how powerful it is for me to experience some of that now at age 43. And if kids are getting a taste of that at age 15, at age 18, at age 21, imagine what kind of world they're going to create. Imagine who they're going to be and what they will have accomplished after a few decades of that kind of self-awareness, that kind of consciousness on this planet, like the ideas that people are able to share now online and connect with these communities of really forward thinking people who are questioning everything, that brings me so much hope 
And that hope brings me joy. I love that. And I think it's such a great thing to think about of how much as an educator you are, as a teacher you are, that you are still a student. And so really thinking about when we think about our role as educators in the classroom as bringing knowledge, um, you're really demonstrating that we are not the keepers of, of learning. We are not the knowledge holders and that really the beauty of learning comes when we learn in community, when we learn from one another, when that learning is intergenerational. And right. yes, like I just, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, and and uh, I, I'm I'm sitting here just you know lightheaded because I think I think you know when when you've been kind of neck deep in in the work and in the struggles um, for for this long, it, it can it can be easy to lose sight of you know the things that there are to be really excited about. Um, I don't know if I go so far as optimistic, but I'm excited <laughs> to look at um, these things like my my own kid is so much more well-read than I was um, at the same age. And the conversations that young people are having today are so much deeper than the ones I had when I was in high school. And they, and, you know, and not to be too, you know, uh, too sort of naive about it. They're also dealing with a lot more than I think I had to deal with when, when I was in high school. It's just like the pressures are always there, but but to see them practice freedom earlier and to think about that, that is a really exciting thing. And when, when, I, when I talk to my own kid, when my other students struggle with where am I going in life? What am I doing? Like, well, I'm so like nervous about the future. I always try to bring them back to, man, but the things you've been talking about and trying out and the ways you've been expressing yourself, like I wasn't doing that when, when I was your age. In fact, I was like even... I, I was so far behind as a high school student in comparison. And um, that is something to be really excited about. I, I had a chance to talk to uh, Luis J. Rodriguez, author um, and, and the, the person who started Dietrich's Cafe in, in, in the LA area. And one of the things he points out, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm close to 70, but being around young people just helps me keep moving and keep learning. And, you know, that, that mindset as a, as a lifelong learner is just really, really obvious so thank you for sharing that that joy with us i think that's uh, so powerful um yeah these young kids i'm telling you i love it people complain yeah. about oh they're they're entitled they're soft they aren't they should be entitled they are entitled to a better world than what they have yeah, yeah they're demanding oh, they're things. Soft. do you mean like <laughs> empathetic you mean they actually like, care about right. how people are treated oh my gosh like yeah. this is exactly what we wanted for them this is yep. exactly what we wanted for them so I, I see so many sparks of just beautiful, just, yeah, it's, it is liberation, you know, like that's staying eyes on the prize. That's where we're moving toward. There are glimpses of it. And, and that's what inspires me is seeing young people getting to experience things that were never possible for me when I was younger. Well, we, I feel like we could talk all day. This is such an amazing conversation. I, I've really enjoyed it. I feel like Brooke, you really enjoyed it as well. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's been great. And uh, so, but we do understand that we all probably need to get to other responsibilities in life and that kind of thing. But we want to we wanna take it out with something, uh, another insight on kind of who you are and what space you're living in right now. So um, if Kevin were here, he would explain, you know, so your top five performing artists doesn't have to be a ranking, doesn't have to be hierarchical. In fact, we're in the business of trying to uh, smash hierarchies. Um <laughs> 
we can apply the Eric Hale rule. Um, I don't know, Brooke, do you know the Eric Hale rule? No. So the Eric Hale rule, and this is going to be so, so we know we, we got to spend a week with Eric. He's a uh, Texas teacher of the year and a force of nature, I would yes. say. And uh, <laughs> so when he was on the show, when he did his top five, he said, okay, there's a tie for number one. And then I have a three-way tie for number four and a two-way tie for number five. But if it was a top 15, I would include. So uh, that's the Eric <laughs> Hale rule. You can, you can stretch the five to any, any degree you would like. But we'd love to hear who are, who are five. And it can be like all time. It can be just in this moment. Uh, who are the five performing artists that you are you're just feeling right now that are resonating with you? You know, this is, I imagine it's a hard question for everyone. It's especially a hard question for me because most of the time- It's I the hardest have, one. <laughs> I don't have, <laughs> yeah, I could, let's solve like big world problems. That's fine. But ask me to name like my top five artists, like, like shut down completely. That's a um, lot. I normally do not actually have music on. I usually have on a podcast or an audiobook, So I don't even listen to that much music. If I do have on music, it's usually something like very super like Zen, like nature sounds chimes <laughs> yep. like something very relaxed i like like very ethereal things like that's just sort of like my vibe i try to have like, yep. going on all the time yeah uh, particularly if i'm sitting in traffic in the car like i'm oh, definitely man. gonna have on spa channel need that piece <laughs> <laughs> so but in terms of like what really makes me feel something if i mm. like what i really enjoy it's gonna be 90s r&b hip-hop um, yo a hundred percent so, um, you know, I mean, that's uh, our generation, right? Everybody on this call. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think Aaliyah is obviously one of the greatest of all time. Oh, uh, Mary J obviously, yeah. um, Lauren Hill, uh, Sade, Jodeci is always a whole vibe. Always oh, like yes. never get tired of Jodeci. Come on. <laughs> um, you know, SWV I love. I, and of course, Prince, like, I think if I, if I had to say like, who was the most brilliant artist of all time, I don't really go into best, but I just think he was just absolutely brilliant. Um, he was an amazing, just a, just a legend. So, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I think I can, I can name Prince and Aaliyah and feel like I, I covered some, some important ground. <laughs> I think so. Absolutely. And, and what's great is to see there's, there's definitely been a resurgence in popularity among the next generation in yes. like when it comes to our music and i will yes. say that is our music as our as, music uh, yes. exactly um <laughs> it's funny i have a student named jasmine who's like one of my favorite humans i've ever met and um and she was just asking me once in the spring she's like mister y'all's generation was so dope <laughs> <laughs> and it may have been the first time that a generation was called dope by like the younger generation like i don't think this happens very often like your clothes, your music, like, was it just like heaven back then? <laughs> and it's, it's a loaded question for sure. But it, you know, that, that, that list is a whole vibe And Prince. Um, I just think Prince has so much still to teach us about being your, your authentic self, about mm. being, about not shying away from your brilliance and creativity and um, man. And it's, it's just, it's hard to still live in a world that doesn't have um, Aaliyah or Prince, you know? What do you think, Brooke? What are your comments on this on this uh, list? My favorite concert I ever went to on my short list. I haven't been to many concerts in my life. <laughs> Same. Um, but I saw Lauren Hill and The Roots, Summer Nights at the mm -hmm. Pier. And I was like, you know, a few arm lengths away from her. And it was oh, right after her acoustic man. album had just come out. And so... Yep. 
I think Lauren, uh, mm. again, is a creative, uh, just genius and yeah. her beauty with words and um, music and just the way, um, like, I just felt so seen whenever I listen <laughs> to Lauren, yeah. I'm just like, yeah. oh, girl, I feel so seen yeah. and challenged and supported at the same time. And I think that's what I strive to do in my life is like, how can I support yet consistently push and challenge, which I think uh, we're in good company for that on this call. Like, how can we lead with love, but also push? Like, how can we lovingly push folks um, to be better because our kids deserve it? Our, how can we be a good ancestor because um, the future generations deserve it. And so what can we do to continue pushing that work? So yes, your list is like, yeah. your list and, is I, and I was so excited to see uh, Lauren Hill pop up on Nas's new release. That was, that was so exciting for me because she's caught a lot of uh, smoke. She's got a lot of flack for just the way she's lived her life the last 10 or 15 years. But there's also a part of me that says that in the same way that Lauren teaches us a way to see the young people in our presence. Lauren also teaches us that, no, actually, I'm going to do whatever I want because it's my life. I get to live this life. I get to decide like how I'm going to invest in things because, um, because I'm the only one that's actually going to get to live my life. And so um, I will never be mad. If somebody posted on Twitter, did you see that, Brooke? Somebody like tweeted, like, are there people who are still fans of Lauren Hill? And I'm like, what is this question? And so, but it was great. We had like there, like 150 people came for that individual, and it was it was wonderful to see <laughs> because some things you just like you don't ask that question. It's it's just, it's disrespectful. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think it's just like we as as humble fans and and guests to her creative genius. She doesn't owe us anything. And I think oftentimes as, as fans and as people who are supporters, like, no, no, we just get to enjoy what she decides yep. to share with us. And I think we yep. have to remember that in every aspect. I mean, I think we saw a lot of that at the Olympics this year of, mm. of like, folks don't yeah, owe us anything. Miles. And yeah. so really thinking about um, she is teaching us that. So not even her beautiful genius that she's sharing with us, but also she's teaching us. Um, she taught me a lot about how to find my voice and about mm. how to live an authentic life um, that is pleasing to me. I, I got out the race. I got out the competition yeah. race. And it's like, you yeah. can't compete with me because I want to see y'all win too. And mm. your opinion of me is not going to dictate how I live my life. Yeah. So, and that was yes. So sorry, I love it so hard. So I'm so excited. Hey, no, we 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 live for the excitement here. This is all this was 100 about. Um, Yeah, it just reminds me of a conversation I heard on Talib Kweli's podcast, People's Party, when he was talking to Yasin Bey, and um, Talib's uh, his co-host Jasmine Lee asked uh, Yasin, "So when's that next album coming out?" And he says, "When it comes out." (laughs) <laughs> he's like we as artists don't owe you anything like I'm gonna put it out it's gonna happen but as far as I'm not trying to build you know any kind of anticipation I'm in a process and so it's a lot of that same thing and so maybe that is a place and I do think that this whole list of folks it's it's folks who who have done what they wanted how they wanted to do it and you even look at Mary J Blige and her transition into acting and the, the characters that she's played that people wouldn't have guessed Mary J would play um, again, you have another example of a person living living their life and would that all of us, including teachers, 
um, start drawing that line and saying, this is my life to live. And um, you're, you're not going to bully me or shame me into being something that I'm not. Angela Watson, this has been an amazing conversation. It's like even better than I anticipated. And I thought it was going to be great. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for taking your time uh, with us. How do people follow your work? How do people learn your ideas more up close? Where, where can they find you? You can just go to truthforteachers.com and that will link you to everything else, to my books, to my courses, to 40 hour work week, um, and to my podcast. Obviously your listeners are fans of audio. So, um, truth for teachers has some amazing, amazing educators who are sharing their ideas coming up this season. I'm so excited. Season 14 just kicked off. So 14. Um, oh, that's amazing. Yes. Goals. That's goals right yeah. there. <laughs> yes. Head over to truthforteachers.com one-stop shopping. Of course, it's convenient and simple because that's how Angela rolls. She wants to make things accessible <laughs> and efficient and manageable. And why would your content be any different? Um, so we, we have a way we like to take things out. I'll ramble for a little bit and then all together we'll do our best to say stay dope. Regardless of the internet speeds we deal with, it's okay if we're not 100% in, <laughs> in place. Uh, so for my guest host, Brooke Brown, for the amazing Angela Watson, my name is Hidar Bernios. We are inviting you to stay in your awakened mindsets, to stay protecting teachers from bad policy, to stay imagining better solutions and something better, and to stay healing, to stay liberated from expectation, and to daily pursue those uh pursue that elusive joy that can seem so hard to find but could also be right around the corner more than anything we invite you as you get ready for what's coming up to stay dope